0: Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand, and live streaming are available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website, and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliott. Melbourne recently hosted the fifth Critical Animal Studies Oceania Conference. The theme of the conference, Forging Alliances and Intersections. A theme that aptly reflects critical animal studies. A blending of theory and action, scholarship and activism. The Institute of Critical Animal Studies has its roots in animal liberation and anarchism and believes all oppressions are interconnected. And as this is so, liberation will only be achieved if all structures of domination are challenged and dismantled. The final aim an equitable, inclusive and peaceful world. And so for the next hour, 3CR will be broadcasting the opening night talk of the 2017 ICAS, Institute of Critical Animal Studies, Oceana Conference. Dr Yamini Narayanan spoke on cow protectionism and Indian animal advocacy, the fracturing and fusing of social movements. Freedom of Species would like to thank the organisers of the conference and the good people at Progressive Podcast Australia who gave permission for us to broadcast this very important talk. If you like what you hear, it's worth visiting the Progressive Podcast website with the super easy website address of com. So I'll hand you over to Jess Ison, a representative from ICAS Oceania, who introduced Dr. Yamini Narainen on the night.
1: So, Yamini
0: Narayanan is a Senior Lecturer in International and Community Development at Deakin University in Melbourne. Her work focuses on the politics and sociologies of human-animal relations in India and on species-inclusive urban planning. She has just completed a three-year DECRA fellowship funded by the Australian Research Council where she conducted one of the first studies on the implications of India's cow protection uh, politics and practices for the cow. Her work has been published in leading forums like environment and planning, sustainable development and society and animals. She was nominated lifelong fellow of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics. She is currently writing a book on India's cow protectionism from a critical animal ethics standpoint and we all look forward to that. So please join me in welcoming her.
2: Thank you so much, Jess, for such a lucid and generous uh, introduction, and thank you also to Jess, Lara, and Nick, amongst others at ICAS for for inviting me to deliver this presentation. Um, My work has developed into one of the first empirical explorations of what India's cow protection discourse, legislations, and politics means for the cows for the actual cows, and also for the broader animal advocacy movement in India. We all know that India has, uh, in cows in India have a unique status as protected based on a Hindu ethic of regarding these animals as sacred, as goddesses, as, as divinity, etc. Um, and it's always, including in India, within the activist community as well in India, it is generally, almost unreflectively cons- regarded to be a good thing for the cows. Like, how can it possibly be bad to have a unique protected status for the cows? And um, my my work's basically... But but what has basically happened in the last almost 60, 70, almost 100 years is that all analysis of cow protection has basically taken non-sectarian dimensions. And I will be touching upon this substantially in this presentation, while I'll also focus on what happens to the cows, um, because... I'd like to specifically pitch to this whole theme of intersections and alliances. Uh, There will be a few disturbing photographs and there won't be many at all. Nothing that we as animal activists haven't seen worse, I think. In that little picture on the left is a photo of this Muslim man called Kutubuddin Ansari. In 2002, this was a photo that was taken of him literally begging for his life. In 2002, when there were some extraordinarily violent and countrywide Hindu-Muslim riots in India, right? And a journalist took this photograph of him literally begging for his life in front of a rampaging Hindu nationalist crowd who were going to lynch him alive. Um, And this was one of those moments, this was one of those photographs which actually suddenly gives us pause when it's printed in the first front page of a newspaper. It suddenly gives you pause as a, as a society, as a people, as a nation about what have we become. Because when you look at that begging man, you don't see a oh, Muslim that's, you know, a bad Muslim or whatever. But you actually see a human being that's been reduced to that sort of objection, right? That sort of an objection he's literally begging for his life. Qutbuddin Ansari was saved. He was rescued, right? Muhammad Naim on this side, not so much. In the last photographs taken of him, Muhammad's cattle trader. He is a cattle trader, most likely a cattle trafficker, most likely someone that was taking cows to butchery. Right? He is pleading to a group of villagers as blood trickles down his head. He and four of his mates were dragged out of a passing SUV in a, in the, in a northern state in India, in Jharkhand, on suspicion of being cow traffickers. And half of his body is soaked in red. His shirt is presumably ripped away. And hands folded... This father of three also struggles to convince the people surrounding him that he's innocent. But they lynch him and his mates to death anyway. This happened just last month. In April this year, Pehelu Khan, a Muslim dairy farmer, was killed by a lynch mob, a Hindu nationalist lynch mob, on suspicion of, of transporting cows for butchery. Two courts posthumously have acquitted him of the charge of butchery. He was guilty of cruelty, and which dairy farmer is not. Right, dairy farmers. I mean, dairy farming is inherently a cruel industry. So he was guilty of cruelty, but he was not guilty of butchery. And here you can see his family mourning his death because he was lynched to death uh, on suspicion of, of butchery. And this was, again, a plea that his family put forward saying he was innocent and he shouldn't have been. He was a dairy farmer. He wasn't a butcher. He didn't kill cows. And in a country where cow slaughter is prohibited legislatively, uh, there were all these really bad implications if you're, suspicious, if you're suspected of killing cows. And again, in 2017, a 16-year-old Muslim boy, a minor, was again lynched to death in a train. Um, because he was on his way to eat celebrations, because it was just after the month of Ramzan, and um, again, a Hindu nationalist mob suspected him of having beef, or having beef on his person, in his luggage, whatever, and they lynched him to death. Just in the first six months of 2017, 20 Muslims have been lynched to death. Many others have just been lynched, or raped, or beaten, right? And it's not just men. Last year, a woman accused of eating beef was gang raped by, by a bunch of self-styled um, Hindu activists, Hindu um, cow protectionists for her crime. And then two other Muslim women were also severely beaten uh, when they were discovered with 30 kilos of beef. Now, again, later DNA tests revealed that this was buffalo beef. Now, morally, as animal activists, it's irrelevant whether it's Buffalo beef or chicken or, or goat or whatever, it doesn't make a difference, right? But legislatively, in India, it is important that it was not cow beef, it was actually buffalo beef, but they were, they were beaten and raped anyway on charges of having beef on their peasant. And there's no doubt that some sort of medieval madness has taken over India in the shape of Islamophobia and regular lynching of Muslims in different states. And this is not new. I mean, this is not something that's just happened. It's, it's, it's an old problem. It's, you know, we can trace, trace this sort of Hindu-Muslim tensions in India and, and, and a more broad form of Islamophobia in India, link it back to events in the world. It's, that's all possible. So it's not unique. It's not new. But the situation has moved very quickly from not renting homes to Muslims, uh, to refusing to tolerate their presence in public spaces, uh, and Muslims are being taunted on trains, fights are initiated, etc. But the interesting thing from an animal advocacy point of view uh, is that now there's been an escalation of these this sorts of violence over animal bodies, over cattle bodies. And where does that place us as animal activists? How does animal activism actually respond to this? Because this sort of violence is being done in the name of protection, cow protection, specifically, right? A very, very important animal in in the general um, farming um, industry. And these lynchings have become so common that we don't even know who to respond to anymore. Should we weep for Muhammad Naeem or Pehru Khan or Muhammad Akhlaq? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So let's have a brief look at the context of car protection in India. Like a really whistle-stop tour about, you know, the context of car protection. And specifically, I'd like to highlight two contexts, Right? One is a pure economic context. India's constitution was framed immediately after independence in the 1950s. When the the nation was severely food insecure, right? India was so food insecure that we were importing two very important things that were critical for sustaining diets. One was milk and one was brains. Both of these are related back to cattle. Right? In fact, dairy, cattle for dairy were also, was just not as important as cattle for traction in India. It was always, you know, the bullocks um, using, you know, the use of bullocks for traction was much more important. Cattle were literally considered the backbone of the Indian agricultural economy because they were used very widely in agriculture. So because we were importing grains as well as milk, a policy decision, an agricultural policy decision was taken not to slaughter cows. Because you can't slaughter the animal that's actually holding up, holding up two important food industries, that is milk as well as, uh, as well as grains, right? So the cow for her milk and the bull for its traction as well as for its genetic material, because the, 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 the germplasm of bulls is really important for, for breeding, um, this was really important. And so the Constitution actually inserted a clause to not slaughter cows, and this was an agricultural policy decision. This was not in the interest of the animals per se. This was actually in the interest of animal exploitation, if you will. The second context that I'd like to highlight is a sectarian a sectarian communal aspect, right? In 1947, when India was partitioned into two, we saw some of the worst genocides in history between Hindus and Muslims. Hindus and Muslims were in both sides of the border were massacred because Pakistan was created as a pure Islamic state. And there were lots of Hindu nationalists in India who felt that India should therefore have been have been established as a pure Hindu state. And they've always resented the fact that India was a secular country, right? And they've never stopped advocating for a Hindu Indian state. And the cow, as a symbol of Hindu purity, has become a vehicle through which they try and, first of all, advocate for... It's a really easy, it's a convenient way of saying the cow is a symbol of Hindu purity. We want a Hindu purity, which basically means it needs to be cleaned, cleansed of Muslims and these bad Muslims are butchering the cow. It becomes an extremely easy sort of narrative, right? And through colonial rule, there was a cow protection movement that started um, in the 1800s. It was politically formalized. It comprised of theologians, Hindu saints, right-wing groups, social reformers, but they were all united by the idea that mother cow equates mother India, right? And they also agitated for national ban on slaughter. On cow slaughter, so you see, there's two contexts for preventing cow slaughter, and neither of them have anything to do with animal ethics or animal liberation. One is an agricultural policy decision; the other one is a nationalist, a Hindu nationalist decision. This is my mother, and if you slaughter my mother, she becomes it becomes a really easy way to other someone. Right? Because how's my mother? So. If you look at some of the ways in which the cow has been mobilized in a vehicle for Islamophobia, here these are these cartoons where they show this young noble Hindu king who is protecting the cow from this butcher who's like twice the size of twice the size of this Hindu guy, right? He's monstrous, he's demonic, and he's wearing he's got his beard and he's got his skull cap, and you know, in every possible way that you can caricature the tension, it's been caricatured, right? So you can see that you can see the ways in which this is being. Um, the, the evil Muslim, his, he's got a knife in his hand, as you can see, and the, this noble Hindu king, who's quite small but brave anyway, is, is uh, killing him. <laughs> and then you also have this is very common. Save the nation, save the cow. Okay, the, you save the Hindu Indian nation, and you do that by saving the cow. It's got nothing to do. It's got nothing to do with animal animal ethics. But this is a really common. It's not to say that only the Hindus do it. It's a common way. Animals are animals are landscapes upon which tensions are fought. Yeah, like um, you know, for example, a lot of scholars have talked about how urban spaces are becoming really easy um, spaces where sectarian tensions, communal tensions, race tensions are enacted because urban spaces allow and offer that sort of that sort of infrastructure. You want to kill someone, you know. It's, Cities make it easy to do that, right? But, but but animal bodies are also landscapes upon which tensions are fought. And this, these are two posters which an animal activist friend of mine put together and he gave them to me. And, you know, he, he kind of put them together and gave them to me. So this is from an um, activist group in Chennai. And they notice these posters all over the city, right? So in the top is a poster that's been created by Muslim fundamentalists. And they have a photo of the cow, and basically the message in Tamil is that butcher the cow, throw her into temples to piss the Hindus off. Below, Hindu nationalists, not to be outdone, have got a poster with a pig, saying butcher the pig, throw her into the mosque, and we can piss the Muslims off. You see what I'm saying? So animal, and of course these animals have nothing to do with you know, these sorts of tensions. That goes without saying, right? But they become enmeshed. They become enmeshed in our... So the speciesism is kind of so intricately enmeshed in, in racism and sectarianism and casteism, etc. And they are, of course, vulnerable to multiple op- uh, oppressions because of that. And here as well, another poster of... This couldn't be more obvious. This could not be more obvious. So the butcher's hand is a green Islamic, you know, with a crescent... Green, a symbol of Islam. He's trying to kill this cow, and then you look at the hand that's preventing it. The saffron is a color of Hinduism, and he has got an Om, and he is come to save the cow from butchery. Don't make too much of the swastika. The swastika has got nothing to do with anti-Semitism. The swastika is a very, very old Hindu symbol of auspiciousness, long before Hitler stole it. So that's that's, that doesn't need to be read into. But if you look at the hand. If you look at the two hands, the Muslim hand is like killing the cow with his crescent. It could not be, it could not be more obvious. And of course, the, 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 the message again, save the cow, save the nation. Right? So you can again see the ways in which these things operate. Um, in 1992, just to go back a little bit, Hindu fundamentalists destroyed this 500-year-old uh, mosque. Okay, it's called the Babri Masjid. It's, it's in it's in northern India. They destroyed a 500 year old mosque, as you can see in this picture. It's a really old archaeological heritage, and there you can see all the fundamentalists, the Hindu nationalists, jumping on the mosque, and they destroyed it to rubble in a, in a matter of hours. Actually, this huge mosque, on the basis that a Hindu god was um, was born in this exact place where where the, where the Babri Masjid was. Now the thing is, after 1947, the worst riots were triggered by. The events of 1992, so much so that there was backlash and you know ripple effects in Pakistan and in Bangladesh as well, where they reacted, they broke Hindu temples in return, etc. But political analysts now fear that the cow, these tensions over the cow, are at least as bad, if not even worse, than these events that were perpetuated in 1947 or, or certainly 1992. So you can imagine the animal he's enmeshed in some of the worst tensions that the country has seen. He's a political analyst, Shivam, which he regards cow protectionism as one of the most polarizing tools of political segregation between Hindus and Muslims, even about the horrific and enduring implications of the destruction of the 500-year-old Babri Masjid Mosque. And this was regarded to be one of the worst events in riots after 1947. So the demand for cow protection really comes from two groups. One in the interest of animal agriculture, which amounts to speciesism and welfareism, and the other in the interests of sectarianism and casteism. So the strongest motivation for cow protection comes from a basis that is fundamentally violated of both animal rights and human rights. This is cow protection, right? So the cow protection narrative becomes exceptionally problematic because outside looking in, and I say this even in India, you go and talk to animal activists in India, and, they, and I'll get to that in a minute as to why they do use it okay, in their advocacy. Because it's like, you know, cows protected, cows protected from slaughter. What is there to argue on with? What is bad about it? That's a good thing, right? Like which country, which animal activists in which country would not want cow slaughter to be banned? We all would. But then the reasons for that become really important. So the cow protection narrative becomes exceptionally problematic when such a failed, oppressive, violent discourse is co-opted by animal activists as an advocacy strategy. Because what happens then is unconsciously, or sometimes even strategically. Indian animal activism that mobilizes car protection for advocacy implicitly supports sectarianism, casteism, patriarchy, and speciesism. So this specific form of Islamophobia, and, and, and I haven't really come to the um, Anti Dalit movement, which is the low caste Hindus who are usually butchers and tanners as well, which mobilizes, and they are, are low caste Hindus. So of course, we don't want just want a Hindu nation, but we want a very upper caste Hindu nation as well. So that's that's all so embroiled here as well. This really makes this whole situation makes it an exceptionally fraught and tense situation for animal advocacy in India, which also by no means is homogenous, Right? The animal rights movement in India is by no, no means homogeneous. Um, and being vegan or being an animal rights activist in India at the moment when such horrendous kind of violence is being perpetuated on specific human groups does, in the name of animal rights, does leave feeling one incredibly emotionally drained and bereft and the advocacy in the name of the cow has led to some of the most fractured outraged and furious splintering, we're talking about alliances but here we're talking about splintering of the public against the Hindu fanatics who participate in these atrocities but also it gets projected onto animal advocacy itself. You know, because we are all embroiled in this. So this kind of anger against Hindu fanatics also gets projected as anger against animal welfareism. And that places animal, refer- animal the animal rights movement or the animal liberation movement or the animal advocacy movement, however you call it. And you can't really call it anything in India at the moment because it is just so... Um, it is just not homogenous. Um, there is also... This, this sense of this, this entire anger coming against animal, the animal movement. And there are people, including vegans and animal activists, who have taken to social media saying, not in my name. All these atrocities are not in my name. So not in my name is basically India's answer. It's like the equivalent of Black Lives Matter. So the hashtag, not in my name, has really taken off quite well in India, which is basically a... Um, a voice against the lynchings for any reason, but also specifically the beef lynchings, as they have come to be called because these have these have um, uh, taken place on such a such a prolific rate recently. So there's a lot of Hindus, secular Hindus who basically have taken to the streets saying not in my name. I am Hindu but this is not happening in my name, not in my name, right? So you you so there's prominent journalists who say you oppose any lynching, irrespective of faith, and all Indians should say not in my name and here again not in my name specifically against bee flinching as well so there are a lot of indians especially across cities who have taken to social media who have taken to uh, political other forms of political protesting not in my name
0: That was the beautiful voice of Dr. G. Unipingu, singing BAPA in recognition of his recent passing. Such a beautiful voice and by all accounts such a beautiful, gentle soul. He will be missed. You're listening to Freedom of Species, 3CR's Animal Advocacy Program. Today we're broadcasting the opening talk from this year's Critical Animal Studies Oceana Conference. Dr. Yamini Narainen discussing cow protectionism. And Indian animal advocacy.
2: How can we understand animal advocacy movement and car protection movement side by side together? Because clearly, the car protection movement is not an animal advocacy movement. And yet, it is about protecting an animal exactly the same way animal advocacy movement operates. So, when you put the two together, what's going on? What are the, what are the engagements and the, and the back and forth between these two distinct types of movement? First, as I said, there is no coherent, unified movement in India. Okay, what we have in India is an which is you know true of most country, true of most countries, but certainly true of India, exceptionally true of India, is that it's an overwhelmingly welfareist movement. We're still talking about bigger cages and you know free range and blah blah. We're we're talking we're talking about the, the the conversation, the political conversations, the public discourse is very much at the level of improving conditions. Okay, so it is overwhelming, it's confused, it's splintered. There is like a vegan advocacy movement, but you know, people, people don't want to get into that because it's too hard to convince people. And we are a vegetarian country anyway, we are not. But you know, the narrative is, oh, we are already so vegetarian, why should we, etc., etc. So it is overwhelmingly welfarist, it is all about improving conditions. But being welfarist, it is, of course, speciesist as well. So you have a highly welfarist animal movement operating alongside a speciesist or a sectarian cow protection movement, they actually work very well together in advancing each other. They work well together. You have an animal movement which is welfarist, and you have a cow protection movement which is physicist and sectarian, and other things. They work well together. They're, they're good partners in crime, right? So basically, what happens is, and the fundamental way in which the two movements work together, is obscure milk's direct role in cow slaughter. The role of milk in cow slaughter is completely obscured. Why? Because we have placed such an excessive focus on beef. We, in India, the legislations in most states ban cow slaughter and they also criminalize consumption of beef, peddling of beef, it's actually called peddling, Uh, consumption, possession, sale, trade, etc. of beef. They attract some, uh, in some states, they attract as high penalties as the peddling of narcotics, right? In some states, the slaughter of cows equates, the punishments for them equates the slaughter of humans. Right? So, what, what has basically happened is that by excessively focusing on beef, we have completely obscured milk's direct role and complicity in cow slaughter. And the interesting thing is, India has no broiler cattle for cows. Not even for buffaloes, really. It's slow, starting to get formalized. Okay, but if you look at all the top beef countries in the world, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Brazil, Argentina, USA, they all have broiler cattle. All beef countries have broiler cattle. India is the only beef country. India is a leading exporter of beef now. A lot of it does come from buffalo beef. Uh, but India is the only beef country in the world which does not have broiler cattle for beef. All cattle from, All beef cattle in India come from milk, milking cattle, from ex-dairy cattle, from spent dairy cattle, right? So it completely obscures the role of milk. And that is interesting because milk is not only routinely consumed in India as a, a general product, as a general food product as it is everywhere else, but also milk is exceptionally important to Hindus and to Buddhists and to Jains. And I'll come to that in a minute, right? So by obscuring the role of milk in cow, product, in, in cow slaughter, because you have to kill the spent animals, where do you put them? It's a simple economics that faces any country that has a, has, has, has a dairy industry. You have to slaughter the, you know, what do you do? With, with, to have a profitable, or to have a sustainable, at the very least, milk industry, you have to slaughter the animals, once they're not useless. So it basically, a beef ban obscures um, dairy's direct link with cow slaughter, and India is no different from any other milking country. We also need to slaughter our animals. Once they're spent, once they're useless, if they're male, they need to die. Like they, they cannot. We, ca- we actually cannot logically afford to have a cow protection law that works, or we cannot afford to have a cow slaughter ban that works. We can't afford to have a cow slaughter ban and have a dairy industry, even though the link between the two is obscure, and we pretend that oh, beef is the beef is the cause of of cow slaughter in India. Beef is a byproduct in India. Beef and leather are byproducts of the dairy industry in India. We do not have a thriving beef industry in itself. We do not have a beef development board. We do not have anything. We do not have any formal sort of support system for beef, but we do extensively have one for dairy. So we have a national dairy development board, which is one of the world's largest dairy development boards. We have an operation flood, right? Which is literally meant meant to flood the country with milk. Um, but this program is the world's largest dairy development program in the world. Well, It basically links rural milk farmers or rural dairy farmers to urban consumers. And it works beautifully. It's in fact a case study in Stanford and in Harvard, etc., and all their management schools. They actually look at India's dairy industry as one of the successful best practice case studies that links um, at, 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 as, a, as a grassroots management program. It's highly successful. It works and it is the world's largest. Um, in 2017, we have got, uh, we, we got a demand for about 100 million sperm doses, which ranks highly, as high as, and in fact, exceeds the, the, the same uh, sperm dose demands for this artificial insemination for breeding dairy cattle. It is on par or it exceeds some of the other leading dairy countries. We have 75 million dairy farms in India. I don't know how it compares with the other uh, countries, but just to put some context, right? We have about 4,000 cities in India. We have 75 million dairy farms. Some of these dairy farms have larger populations than some of our smaller cities of cattle, right? We have more than 304 million dairy cattle, which is the world's highest So we have all these sort of, you know, we have a huge dairy development program. We do not have a beef development program. We're not meant to. And yet, we are the world's largest beef country. And I actually haven't focused so much on buff- I, all on buffalos here, but we do not really have a formal a formal broiler cattle rearing operations for buffalo either, though it's now beginning to take place. We don't. So in fact, all of our buffalo beef also comes from um, ex-milking um, animals. So if you ask a lot of um, Indians or Hindus in India, they'll say, oh, we have gaushalas. Now, gaushalas are the traditional sanctuaries in India um, which you know, fall under a very Hindu religious framework of, which is where retired cattle traditionally went to live out their lives. It was you know, considered to be a very humane and, 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 and a good concept, right? And which supported the dairy industry. So you could take their milk because you are not slaughtering them. You are actually selling them off to just sanctuaries. But the reality is there is actually nowhere to keep these staggering numbers of animals, spent females or unproductive males. Gaushalas are simply unable to keep up with the flow of retired cattle, or useless cattle, or male cattle, etc. Traditionally, villages in India did have commons or grazing land. That's being subsumed by urbanization. Um, We are also losing forest land and agricultural land at a really rapid rate. And incredibly, we have a right-wing, centre-right government in the place at the moment that has reduced... Funding for gaushalas by 75%, right? So from 4 million a year, we now only get about 1 million a year to, to, to keep gaushalas afloat, which is, which is really completely insufficient when you look at the scale of you know, the number of animals that are being retired from the dairy industry every single year. And in gaushalas too, animals are typically kept in a continued state of incarceration, tying them with ropes in zero grazing conditions. In Europe or in the USA, this would be called concentrated feeding operations. That's what these gauchalas function like, right? And it is completely... I've been to numerous gauchalas in the last few years. Highly common to see highly frustrated young cattle, especially the bulls and the bull calves that are snorting and pacing and agitation. You know, they're kept in these really, really two-feet-long ropes. And in Calcutta gauchala, there was a photo, all these photos I've taken, the Calcutta gauchala... There was a cow that would, you know, that I saw a cow keeling over, having an epileptic fit for about 30 to 40 minutes. And she would do that every single day after milking because, of course, these animals continue to be milked in the gaushala. Happens all the time, in her own ways in her own urine. But this gaushala, this, this, uh, this was a Kaushala that I went to very close to Mathura. Mathura is where Lord Krishna is believed to be born. It's like a Jerusalem for us, right? Lord Krishna was the, was the cow-loving god. Now... There's a Gaushala which had about 20,000 cattle head, and they were emaciated. It was like, if you know those World War II pictures of, of prisoners released from camps, where they're literally skeletal, and that's exactly what it was, like just skeletal. And animals were just skeletal, because they were not allowed to be uh, slaughtered. They were just literally being starved to death. That's one way I don't cost a lot of answers They're just being stuffed. You can just see these, these little ribs protruding. I haven't even taken a good picture, but they're just... These were just skeletal skeletons that were, you know, having last uh, breaths of life in them. And this was a photo that I took. So when I would go and visit these places, uh, they would sort of open these... Of course, the calves would again separated, and... the It happened a few times that I would go inside and because they were, you know, taking me through, suddenly the the calf pen would open and the calves would just run to the mother. Each calf knew who the mother was, where the mother was, would run to the mother. And this photo is not very clear at the moment. I took a photo of this calf that ran straight to the mom and started milking. An emaciated mother probably doesn't have much milk in her, to be honest. Certainly not enough to feed the calf. She is literally emaciated. I don't know when she ate or drank properly the last time. But... If you look at her eyes, like she was just looking at me with some sort of... I people would say it's projection, but I don't think it is when you are actually seeing the, you know, the the, the fear as well as anger saying, don't, don't come close. Because this was, you know, she was so used to it, so used to her calf being dragged away and someone else milking her instead. She was just... the suspicion, the anger, everything. And I managed to get a photograph and and I left immediately. And this was, again, the Hingonia Gaushala in Jaipur uh, just about a year and a half ago. If you look, and this were, they had 10,000 cattle being starved to death in a matter of two months. And this came out in the media. If you look at these animals, they're just skeletal, absolutely skeletal. In fact, this, little bull, this bull calf cannot even get up because his skeleton is, they are steeped in their own feces, in their own, in their own uh, filth, in their own dung. They cannot get up, right? They, they were literally, some of them was, were um, being drowned in their own feces. They, they couldn't even get up. So you, just these animals that are just being piled up. Of course people knew this was going on. I mean, no one could not know that 10,000 cattle are dying in the middle of a city. Right? But, um, this, is what, this, is, this, this is a reality of, of a country where there's, where um, uh, the link with, with cow slaughter and dairy is not sufficiently made. And then you have the religious sort of roots to slaughtering animals, right? So here... Uh, this, is the last picture is the only picture that I took. Everything else has been lent to me by by an activist friend of mine. It is common for Hindu temples to receive bull calves or other spent animals, and then backdoor entry to the slaughterhouse. So they will auction them off the slaughterhouse. So I take my spent animals, my male animals, to the house to to a temple. No one can actually question me because that's such a religious pious thing to do. I take them there and then of course the, the, the temple will have its own sort of liaisons with butchers. Muslim butchers I might add. And they will, um, they will send them off. So everyone's in everyone's hand in glove. So here you can see these t- this calf can't even walk. I mean he's just so been separated from his mother so recently being pushed up to the temple and here as well you can see an animal, a tiny animal, barely capable of walking. They're all being pushed up and in the very last one, usually um, they would all get butchered. They would, they would, they would, these, these would all become veal. The temple would literally sell them off to become veal. But uh, in the last few years, an animal organization had stepped in and was taking all these calves. But think about the pressure that these animal rescue organizations in India have as well. They rescue something like about 300 calves a week. I mean, where are they going to put them? So, of course, these animal sanctuaries also become extremely dense, crowded places, much like factory farms.
1: For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
2: And this photo of mine that I took, I think in 2014 or perhaps in 2015, of this this weeping calf who was just, you know, just you see these calves all the time in these temples, just crying for mum. And this photo that I took actually got shared about 40,000 times on Facebook within a space of a couple of weeks. This was, you know, in 2014. I'm not a good photographer, but this one um, took off just because it just literally showed a hurt traumatized baby. And I think people really resonated with that. And again, to quickly take you through some of the ways in which animals are, these are all cows, but they are constantly being trafficked. You know, and the interesting thing is, cow slaughter is not meant to happen, so it's an unregulated underground industry. If it is unregulated, you can pretty much do what you want. And again, this is not a confronting picture per se, but you will notice calves everywhere in cattle markets, all separated and torn from their mothers. And that one is a little buffalo calf. Right? But it's the same for everybody. Um, cannot even, It's not even capable of walking. Literally separated that recently from mum. But you will find these animals everywhere. And, in, and the thing is calf slaughter, whether it is buffalo or cows, is prohibited in India. You're not allowed to have. Technically speaking, we shouldn't be having any meal at all. Because even buffalo calf slaughter is illegal in India. And again, a photo that I could not take. I wish I was a better photographer. But this line of cows, these are not buffaloes, cows waiting outside a cattle market to be sold for slaughter, this literally went on for about 40 kilometers outside of a cattle market in India, in in Chennai. It goes on for that long. There is absolutely no way that I was able to photograph this, but it just goes on and on and on. You could drive for an hour and you would probably only see the tip of the iceberg. And this is a backyard um, cow slaughter operation, but I was more interested in the in the photo outside, right? You can just see who, how beef is being advertised as this something which is wealthy, something which is something to aspire for. This sort of strong white guy is promoting beef, so it's clearly something that we need to do as well. It actually shows that you know this one, an, an activist was talking to me about. He was saying we somehow think of ourselves as weak if we can't eat meat or if we can't have beef. You know? So that basically is showing power and strength, right? Like we, we think that we are somehow weak if we don't eat beef. Like it's really interesting. And this again is um, cattle pound. Which is which is a government cattle pound. It's interesting. In, in the city of Ilack which has incidentally which has seventeen slaughterhouses. Seventeen licensed slaughterhouses at one city. And this was again again a photograph that I haven't been able to take properly, but this was a bull that was just skeletal, absolutely skeletal walking around that city. And, you know, I managed to buy him some spinach from this little cart which didn't even have that much vegetables anyway. But the interesting thing was this cattle pound over there is a government cattle pound for rescue cattle, and it is empty. It is always empty. Given how many animals are retired from the dairy industry, why is that empty? That should be overfilled, but it is always empty. I've never seen a time when that, that um, cattle pounder actually had a single animal in there. And the kind of butchery that goes on, because, of course, licensed slaughterhouses cannot butcher cows. They happen in forest areas. They happen in peri-urban areas. They happen pretty much everywhere, right? And this, interestingly, was a, was a slaughterhouse. You can, I'm really surprised at how he even allowed me to take that photo of a cow butcher hole, where but clearly the cow was waiting, maybe for next day's slaughter. But this was actually taken outside a temple, So the temple knew, or this was a Muslim butcher house, but then of course everyone knew. Everyone's part of it. And the kind of ways in which trafficking happens as well. You can see some animals being stuffed inside cars and vehicles. And what I'm trying to tell you is much like our grassroots dairy management program, the cow slaughter uh, industry is also extremely successful as a grassroots operation, right? It's extremely successful. It happens in like individuals taking cows and calves to slaughter in cars and SUVs and even three wheelers. But it is successful. This in itself is also, if you were to look at it purely as a management case, study, extremely successful. We have clearly a very successful cow slaughter industry. Our statistics show that, right? So if you look at look at you know, these are cows that are being, this is being transported in a in an SUV, I think, and here again there's. Um, cow, cattle activists chasing a, 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 a truck, which is being, uh, which had, full, which was full of cows. Of course, with the, the um, vehicle overturned, and you can see injured, injured animals, dead animals, and also beef. The ways in which beef is being trafficked everywhere. You can see at the back of cars, at inside, inside a two-wheeler. Right and inside over there and now there's of course a different question about whether all of this is healthy or not and I spoke to a slaughterhouse vet about it and he actually reckons it is and I'll get to that I mean you, but that's not necessarily that's neither that here nor there but that is how beef how far beef travelled as well right it was literally smuggled in in all sorts of extraordinary ways this was a truck that I photographed at a police station in Rajasthan. And as you can see from the outside, it looks like any normal innocuous truck. It could be carrying refrigerators. It could be carrying anything. But the top is the only bit that's uncovered. And inside, it's usually stuffed with cattle. And if you look here, the license plate is whitened off. Right? So you can't actually, it's an unregistered vehicle that's carrying uh, animals around Again, in Haryana State, an activist friend took these photos. Outside looking in, this looks like any, this could be carrying, I don't know, vegetables, right? But if you look down, there's there's animals stuffed in there, all cows that are being stuffed in there, all being taken for slaughter. Look at this. Can you imagine the cruelty that would have in been involved in taking, in pushing this, this this large cow and a calf into a four-wheeler, into a small car? But this is the scale of transportation for slaughter. It is inefficient, and yet it is extremely efficient. You see what I mean? It doesn't involve large trucks having 100 animals. It involves 100 cars, maybe carrying individual animals, of two or three animals, and it is extremely successful. It still works. And then, of course, you have the cross-border trafficking to Bangladesh, because we can't actually... Uh, it's very, because we have Muslim neighbors on either side of the border, where there is no cow slaughter prohibitions, right? So, of course, animals are being taken, which is illegal. It is illegal to transport live animals out, or to export live animals out of India unless there are specific permissions given. It happens on a daily basis, right? And this photo, the other photo is something that you might have all seen, again, again, taken by an activist friend of mine, um, where to keep these animals standing, they stuff them with chilies in their eyes, ginger in their eyes, tobacco powder in their eyes, anything with their eyes. And all of these are spent dairy cattle. They are not beef cattle. All of them are dairy cattle. This is a scale, but this is how successfully a cow protection narrative has completely obscured that milk is at the root of cow slaughter. And milk is at the root of such extraordinary cruelties. Now, all these photos get circulated around and you just think, oh my god, it's because of the beef industry. No, no, it's because of the milk industry. All these animals are being bred for milk. And then, of course, byproducts, such as leather and beef. All right, so um, as as I mentioned earlier, um, milk, of course, is very prolifically consumed as as a regular food product. But milk also has an extraordinary status in Hinduism as sacred itself, not just the cow, but the milk. Almost no religious ceremony in India uh, in Hindu or Jain ceremonies can occur without milk, right? Milk is poured literally in hundreds and thousands of liters in some temples. Literally down the plain because you pour them on the idol as a way of consecration, as a way of you know, baptism, as you as you will, etc. And over there, you can actually see some psychophants uh, pouring milk on a, on a poster of a film star because they regard him also as a god. Um, so it's all a bit crazy. But the ways in which the cow protection, as I mentioned earlier, operates is basically cow as a milk machine or cow as a mother goddess but, but in environmental politics there is an emergent strand of animal advocacy which basically says we need to recognize animals as animals what are the specific species specific vulnerabilities How, what does? We can only understand animal protection if we fully recognize the animal for what it is but the cow is not being recognized for what a cow actually means or what a cow actually is the cow is a goddess or the cow is a milk machine Neither of them recognize cow as cow. What is the cow actually? Or the or the production aspects do recognize the cow, but as a production machine. What does it mean to be a cow as a production machine? Not a cow as just a cow. Right? So, um, again, with, with animal advocacy and, and the ways in which they have responded to cow protection, they have... In some ways, many, many animal advocates in India, as I said, it's a splintered movement, but they do either unselfconsciously or sometimes strategically see Islamophobia as part of their advocacy strategies. Okay, So they also buy into the myth or into the sort of narrative that cow slaughter is being done by Muslims for because they are so excessively interested in beef and because they consume beef so much. Right, but the reality is for the actual cow is unquestioned. And now, what happens is a lot of animal advocates do buy into cow protection. They support it. Like a lot of, in fact, when I published one of my early articles critiquing cow protection, um, many of uh, many animal advocates actually refuse to share it on Facebook. Or they're like, "Oh, we, you know, we, we, we don't we don't want we don't want you we don't want to promote anything that criticizes cow protection because they say, and that's something that we can all relate to. Wins are hard in animal advocacy. We can fight for 20 years and finally, um, you know, with, with, with chickens, for example, and finally, you know, fight for, you know, chicken, chicken advocacy. You know, we don't know what it's like. You fight and fight and fight and finally you manage to get a matchbox worth of space, extra space. The cages are just that much bigger. So wins are really hard to come by. And they are like when we have something which legislatively, legislatively allows us to advocate and to follow through on a slaughter ban, why would we give that up? You know, why would we give that up? It is, it, is, it is easy because it actually offers a tangible legal hook. Okay, you see someone that's butchering a cow, I can actually have I have a tangible legal hook upon which to, to file a case, upon which to actually rescue the animal. Because the police will say, yes, that is illegal. If I say if someone's slaughtering a chicken, they'll say like, yeah, whatever. That's not illegal. Cow slaughter is illegal. So, so animal advocates are like, why would we give that up? right? So they actually do see this car protection as being in the best interest. It is not just um, it is not just Indian animal advocates either right? So Humane Society International recently instituted a whole Humane Society International India they instituted a number of rules and laws which again have been recalled uh, which ban the sale of cattle for slaughter PETA, for example, had all these advocacy uh, campaigns, successful advocacy campaigns in many respects, focusing on the cruelties embedded in leather. But they only focused on bovine leather. Because again, even when it's foreign advocates, animal advocates operating in India, it's tempting. The legislative hook is already there. Why would we not use it? Whereas only half of our leather comes from bovines. The rest of it comes from sheep and goats. They also suffer identical cruelties. But PETA did not focus on those. They only focused on cows right, they are again focused, on it. so it's tempting, it's something it's tempting, so there's a real tangible hook so animal advocacy co-opts it constantly right, and um, so but what happens is that first of all we can actually see that caste is happening as prolifically as, pos- as, as always on the ground, but it also reinforces the link to uh, it also actually implicitly supports, the animal advocacy is instead seen as supporting uh, uh, casteism Seen as supporting sectarianism. Seen as supporting Islamophobia. Because I mentioned earlier that animal advocacy in India has all these really huge problems. They have hostility. They are regarded with suspicion at the moment precisely because they have been supportive of caste protection. Right? And if you talk to Muslims or low caste Hindus, they say, beef is only one of the many meats that we consume. We don't recognize beef as something exceptional. We don't think that, oh, let's go consume beef to piss off the Muslim Hindus. We don't, they don't think that. Beef for them is no different from mutton, from chicken, from fish right? But when cow protection makes beef eating um, when, when the Hindu nationalists start lynching you, raping you, beating you murdering you for eating beef then eating beef becomes a necessary act of political resistance they have to eat beef right? they have to eat beef they have to slaughter cows so animal advocacy is almost by supporting all this are almost working themselves into a corner because if, if all of these things are being done for eating beef, well, then I must eat beef, mustn't I? So it becomes, it becomes this no-win situation, right? And you can see all these. I've had any number of secular Hindus, were open-minded Hindus, who have come and told me that we never used to eat beef before, but now we do, as a resistance to Islamophobia, as a resistance to sectarianism right? And so you can watch this. And in the age of social media, everything goes viral. Everything goes on Facebook. So there was this vegetarian member of parliament in the state of Kerala. He publicly ate beef, and it went viral on Facebook after 19 years of being vegetarian. As a political act. As a political resistance, right? So you you sort of inviting more cow slaughter, inviting more sort of consumption of beef because of this. And then you have this beef... Um, These are low caste, um, these are some lower caste Hindus uh, and they necessarily have to have a beef festival. When I went to the university, Osmania University, 97% of them belong to this particular caste and they have to have this, um, they have to eat beef. And I don't think I have time, there's a YouTube video where this guy is basically has a rap song, which which again went pretty viral in India, which basically says beef is a secret of my energy. Right, he's actually promoting beef, like I need to eat beef. Beef is my identity. Beef is what we eat. And it becomes this really important thing that you've got to do as an act of resistance, as an act of identity assertion, right? Inviting this. And as early as 1925, Mahatma Gandhi had already said, beef eating, which is nearly permissible in Islam, will become a duty if compulsion is resorted to by Hindus. And he said, dismiss from your mind Muslims and Christians altogether, do your duty first. Mind your own duty first. Forget about what the Muslims are doing. Forget about what anyone else is doing. You do what you got to do. And he talked about the cruelties in the dairy industry. He never mentioned the word vegan. That's presumably not a word he was familiar with. But he definitely talked at length about the cruelties in the dairy industry, right? And just the very last slide. What are, in terms of alliances? In terms of intersections? What next for Indian animal advocacy? We focus on beef. Or focus on milk, not beef. Focus on breeding. Something that all animal advocacy needs to do because we all tend to focus on slaughter. But we very rarely tend to focus on breeding, on the breeding of all these animals. Right? And we also Indian animal advocacy, and I think these are lessons here for advocacy movements elsewhere, ally with those specifically oppressed by car protection. Ally with the Dalit groups, the low caste groups, ally with Muslim groups. Because not only Muslims but animals are also being oppressed by these narratives ally with these particular groups ally with the women's movement right and if we don't ally there's going to be other problematic alliances the Hindu nationalist groups have have been um, also engaging with Muslim groups to promote milk consumption and if you look at Mahatma Gandhi the last lesson right from Mahatma Gandhi when he fought for India's freedom movement he didn't just say I'm going to fight for India's freedom he allied with a whole different number of groups including outside of India he allied with the Khilafat movement, which was supporting Muslims in Turkey, South Africa. He spoke out against anti-Semitism, because this was the time of the Second World War. He spoke about cow protection and vegetarianism as part of his non-violence. That had nothing, nothing specifically to do with India's freedom movement, but he still spoke about cow protection, uh, animal protection, vegetarianism. He allied with women's movements. He allied with farmers' rights, hindu unity, whatever he could to grow the numbers. Right, creating critical mass. So I'd like to just end with that, that the, the need to sort of you know make these sorts of alliances, and basically we end on a more cheerful note about all of these photographs. Again, you know this, this, this first one I took of this Muslim woman who was hugging a goat that she had grown fond of, that she was meant to slaughter, and she is she's she's now as I met her at a peps, right in India, where she was so worried about the goat being sick, and the middle one is just my chicken. <laughs> who always managed to find a way to one of her presentations or another. All right. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Yamini Narayanan speaking on cow protectionism and Indian animal advocacy. It was a talk that was presented on the opening night of the recent 2017 Critical Animal Studies Oceana Conference Uh, We are quickly coming to the end of the hour, so we will have to say goodbye, but we do have a lot of information about um, what has been discussed today on the program, Dr Yamini's work, um, critical animal studies, links to their website, and also links to Progressive Podcast Australia on our Freedom of Species podcast page. So please, uh, if you are interested in these topics, do visit the podcast page on the Freedom of Species website. Thanks so much for tuning in today and we'll see you again next week.
1: For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online, 3cr.org.au